Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. In the Byzantine liturgical calendar this day, there's a actually a double observance, a double observance having to do with something in triples. That is the triplet of the great bishops, Basil the Great, John Chrysostom, and Gregory the Theologian, Gregory Nazianzus. These three bishops of the Eastern churches have had their own feast days earlier this month of January. And the reason why they're celebrated today all together is because, and this is what I call the good old days, there were actually fights, you know, bar fights years ago over who was the greater. Was it John Chrysostom, St. Basil the Great, or St. Gregory the Theologian? In fact, they actually almost had like street gangs that were committed to each one of those, and they would fight. Can you imagine that? Now, that's the good old days, fighting over something like that. Well, in a vision that appeared to these saints, the bishop at the time in Constantinople received a vision, it was in a dream, in which these three men told him, look, get everybody to stop fighting. None of us is greater than the other. We're all three equal. So why don't you have a feast day that honors all three of us so there won't be any fighting? And that's exactly what happened. And that's how this holy day came about. It's called the Feast of the Three Holy Hierarchs, Basil, Gregory, and John. But at the same time, we also have the first little distant echo, the first hint of the coming of the penitential season of the great fast of Lent. Oh, yeah. We have five preparatory Sundays in the Byzantine calendar leading up to the beginning of Lent. We call it the great fast. And that would be today. It would be with the feast of the, or the theme from the gospel of the Sunday of Zacchaeus, you know, the little tax collector who everybody hated. He was crooked and cheated people. That's what tax collectors did in the biblical times. And he ran up a tree to get a look at Jesus. Jesus was coming down the road with a crowd and he wanted to see him really badly. And Jesus said to him, looked up at the tree and said to him, I want to be in your home tonight. I want to have dinner with you. Everybody was scandalized. And Zacchaeus ran down the tree and was overjoyed that this Jesus would so honor him, a tax collector. And so he became one of his followers. So that becomes the first little hint, echo of the coming of the penitential season. And the theme is desire. 
our desire for Christ, which you should have now, having come through the season of the incarnation, we should be full of desire for God, a God that did something so marvelous as to become incarnate, become one of us, humble himself so that he could raise us up to heights of glory with him in heaven. So we should desire God. So that's the first theme. Now, St. Basil the Great and St. John Chrysostom have divine liturgies, in other words, the Eucharistic liturgies, named after them. One is St. Basil the Great, the other one is St. John Chrysostom. There, there are two different liturgies. They're actually pretty much the same. The difference is in the what the Latin rite would call the Eucharistic prayers. We would call it the anaphora part of the liturgy. Those are the high prayers that have to do with the consecration, with the, you know, the Holy Communion part of the Mass or liturgy. And Basil's liturgy is actually, his anaphora is a little more elaborate, a little longer than Chrysostom's. John Chrysostom, well, he sort of shortened Basil's a bit. And by the way, Basil shortened the liturgy of St. James, which is used in some Eastern churches still to this day. That is an even more elaborate and longer liturgy, if you will. (laughs) But Basil actually shortened that a bit, and then Chrysostom shortened Basil's. And these two men then are the founders of the Byzantine Rite Divine Liturgy as we know it today, St. Basil the Great and St. John Chrysostom. St. Basil the Great's liturgy is used on the highest festive times and also during the Sundays of Lent. But speaking of bishops and liturgy, there's a great tension going on now, especially in the Latin Rite, between certain bishops and, of course, the Supreme Bishop, the Bishop of Rome, and many Latin Rite Catholics who are really really drawn to the ancient traditions of the Latin Rite, in particular, the traditional Latin Mass, the Mass that was the norm prior to the Second Vatican Council. And there's some tension going on in the Latin Rite over this, because the Pope and other church leaders, not all, but many other church leaders, are finding this to be divisive. And they're trying to basically urge, maybe I could say enforce, the use of pretty much one type of Mass, and that is the so-called Novus Ordo. In other words, the new order that came about after the Second Vatican Council. Now, the Second Vatican Council did not create a Novus Ordo per se as we know it, especially as Latin Rite Catholics know it. It laid the groundwork for that, but changes came after the Second Vatican Council, not necessarily because of the Second Vatican Council. The changes came in the Latin Rite. For the Eastern churches, a little different change occurred. In a sense, the opposite. Vatican II, and there's a special section just on the Eastern churches, called the Eastern churches back to their traditions. And it said that if you lost any of your ancient traditions, go back and find them. You resurrect them, dust them off, put them back in place, and live according to your own traditions. But for the Latin Rite, there was a break from what was known as certain traditions, especially the Latin Mass. And so many Latin Rite Catholics are very upset about this, and there's a tension between many of them and the Pope and other prelates of the Latin Rite Church. So what's happened is many Latin Rite Catholics are seeking solace in the Eastern Catholic churches, because Eastern Catholic churches, our liturgies, are still what you would call very traditional. They haven't really been changed. They do not follow the Novus Ordo. The prescriptions for Mass and worship for the Latin Rite do not apply to the Eastern Rites, at least not in in particular. And the reason is, is because the Eastern Rite churches and the Latin Rite church have their own distinctive liturgies, their own distinctive liturgical traditions. And the Eastern Catholic churches are what we call sui juris churches. Sui juris means a church in and of itself. It's, It's Latin for, it's kind of a juridical term. It's a little bit hard to translate exactly, but it basically it means the Eastern churches are churches in 
in and of themselves. In other words, they, in a sense, you could say they're self-governing, but not independent from the Pope, of course. But they have their own tradition. They can decide for themselves their own ways of worship and so on, according to that tradition. Now, the Pope does have to give his okay to these things, but he doesn't really interfere with them, not in any kind of major way, because it's a different tradition. It's almost like apples and oranges. They're both fruits, right? Very good fruits, but they're different. And that's pretty much how it is with liturgy in the church, East and West. But what's happened? How did this come about? Because it's very disconcerting for many, many Latin Rite Catholics. It's a real crisis for many of them. I'm going to offer a little bit of perspective, a little bit of history. We go back to the Second Vatican Council, which was from uh, 1959 to 1965. And what happened was this. This was a council that was called primarily as a pastoral council. In other words, how to engage the world, how to interface with the world in a way that would be more effective, more evangelical. This is what St. John XXIII, the Pope, this is what his idea was when he called, surprisingly, kind of surprised everybody, he called the Second Vatican Council, basically saying the church needs to, like, in a sense, open a window, breathe the fresher air, let some fresh air in, and look out that window and engage the world. The idea was to find out how the church can serve the world more pastorally. In other words, better. It was not meant for the world to influence or change the church. And unfortunately, some of that happened. And here's why it happened and why this controversy is raging today. There were three infiltrations into the church at this time. Some of it was happening, actually was building up over a long time. Three infiltrations. There was, of course, first of all, the essence of the Second Vatican Council. In other words, the basic message, the basic good intent and so on, to be pastoral, to try to evangelize the world in a way that's more effective, because the world was changing. It was becoming more so-called modern. But there were three influences, three, I'm going to call them infiltrations into the Second Vatican Council and afterward that were not supposed to really be part of it. The first infiltration is, I'm going to call it, a certain naivety. And this naivety is something that always happens after any kind of great council or synod in the church. In the history of the church, there's always some period of unsettlement after the council, a little bit of dust flying, a little bit of chaos, and so on. So there was a certain naivety, well-intended, but a bit naive about some of the goals and hopes of the Second Vatican Council, because remember, it was primarily pastoral and very, therefore, ecumenical. In other words, being open to other faiths, reaching out to them, trying to connect with them. So the first infiltration was of a certain naivety. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk more about the other two infiltrations, which are not quite so, maybe I should call them innocent or naive. But there were three of them, basically, as I see things. And this will help us to understand why we are at the point now where there's this great tension, especially over liturgical worship in the Latin Rite, and many of them are seeking the Eastern rites for solace. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card with your help. We can keep Light of the East's illumination bright.
no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian spirituality and the significance of art in the church. The Tabor Life Institute can arrange for marriage encounters, parish missions, and can help your parish facilitate teen faith formation in either English or Spanish. For Father Loya and other speakers, contact the Tabor Life Institute by writing to taborlife at earthlink.net. That's Tabor spelled T-A-B-O-R life at earthlink.net. I'm Father Anthony Bush, pastor of St. Stanislaus Costco, the Sanctuary of the Divine Mercy in Chicago. And you are listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. You are listening to the choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the sacred liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $20 or more, which includes shipping and handling to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loyal, your host, trying to offer some perspective on this Feast of the Three Holy Hierarchs, two of which were responsible for the Byzantine liturgy as we know it today. And I thought I would take that opportunity to offer some perspective from both lungs of the church regarding the tension that we have now in the Latin Rite Church, mostly between the Holy Father and certain prelates in the church and Catholics who really love and appreciate the more traditional aspect of the Latin Rite. I mentioned that there were three infiltrations into the Second Vatican Council that helps to understand where we're at today. Now, before going any further, I just want to say a little word of appreciation for, especially as we've entered this new year, we're still in the first month of this new year, although it's ending soon. And I want to thank all of you for listening, for tuning in to Light of the East this past year and staying with us as we have embarked upon a new year. I want to thank you for all of your kindness to us, your kind letters and thoughts of support and messages. And most recently, I want to thank Dorothy Debler, or Dobler, I think that's how her name is pronounced, Dorothy Dobler of Walla Walla, Washington. Now, I wasn't stuttering there. It really is Walla Walla, Washington. So thank you, Dorothy, for your kind message and gift to us here at Light of the East. Dorothy Dobler from Walla Walla, Washington. And again, thank all of you for being with us. This program here is our 906th program. That's right, 906 programs of Light of the East. Some of you have been probably with us from the beginning. Some have joined us partway through or maybe recently. Whenever, thanks for tuning in. Now, about these infiltrations, there's two more. The first one I said was certain naivety, especially when it comes to ecumenism. We kind of thought that 
with the flush of the Second Vatican Council, it was very positive, very forward-looking, and so on, very pastoral. And we thought that we could just join hands and dialogue, and, and we'll get united again. And there was a lot of this kind of hope, but it was a bit naive. We found out that ecumenism, unity, wasn't just about getting together and feeling good and feeling good about each other and thinking, well, well we can all be one. What's the difference? Yes, we still need to pursue that, but we found out that there's a lot more to it. And some of the naivety that happened after Vatican II was, well, I'll put it this way. When you open a window, as St. Pope John XXIII did for the Second Vatican Council, you let in fresh air. Yes, that's good. I love fresh air. I like open windows and doors. I really do. However, at the same time, and you homeowners know what I mean, when you open up a window to get fresh air, you can get bugs and dust and dirt that comes in as well. And that's what happened with the Second Vatican Council. And some of the dust and dirt that got in and the bugs, one of which was this naivety, where maybe we were too open to the world, letting the world influence the church a little bit too much. It was supposed to be the opposite. Now, the second infiltration was one of a mentality that believed that the Second Vatican Council was something like a revolution, that it was going to save the church. It was going to throw off an old, rigid, stodgy yoke of the church and be more open to the world, kind of get with it more. We call this modernism. It's kind of a simple way of presenting the heresy of modernism. There are those in the church that thought the church was, well, out of step, old-fashioned, this, of course, especially came to a head with the whole teaching on against contraception and on humane vitae. And these people, many of them became, were professors in the seminaries and so on. They had this message that the church had to get with it more. They had to be a more modernized church. They kind of were taking Vatican II a little bit too far. Now, that group, because they believed that they were part of some revolution that was going to really change and save the church, they got stuck in that thinking, especially if they were seminarians. If you were seminarians at that time and your professors were telling you this kind of thing, you know, you're very, very vulnerable. You're, you're very formative at that time because, you know, I was a seminarian. You know, seminary formation really is just that. It's, it forms you. It's formation. Now, some of that formation can be indelible. It can change you forever. Well, they got some bad formation. There was not some kind of revolution that was going to throw off the old yoke of the church and create a new modern church. That was not the intent of Vatican II, and that's not what happens in the church. You don't throw off an old church. The church can evolve in itself, but it doesn't become radically different. It doesn't uproot itself and become a different church, especially not overnight. And those professors and church leaders at that time during the council and shortly after, they wanted this change and they wanted it now. They wanted it soon. So they were kind of reckless at times in their teaching of theology. And there were things that were ripped out, statues and things, a lot of traditional things ripped out as being, oh, old-fashioned, we don't do this anymore. We do this now. This is the new way, the better way. This is a better church. And that group that were formed then, or they were maybe young professors and so on at that time, they are now at the, at the age of like, the Pope, people in their 80s and 70s. And they are remaining committed to that idea of that they were part of this great revolution to save the church. And this is a big part of where the tension is, because we realize now, after we've moved beyond a lot of the naivety of Vatican II, we've learned that, well, there wasn't this revolution. There was some legitimate evolutions, legitimate progress and looking at things, interpreting things in a better way, but there was no fundamental uprooting. In other words, there was not a, supposed to be a break from tradition. There was supposed to be a continuity. It's just that you applied it in ways that were more effective for the modern world. But that generation, 
is now in their 70s and 80s. They believe and are going to the grave with the idea that this was a revolution that cannot be undone. And this is why they're at times being very, well, very hard on the younger people who want to retrieve what they believe was lost since Vatican II, such as the Latin Mass and other devotions and a lot of other things that they believe are truly always part of the Latin Rite Catholic tradition. Now, the third infiltration, and this is the worst one, because this one goes back actually a long time. It's from people like Masons and others who actually were philosophically opposed to the church. They actually wanted to destroy the church. And in fact, yes, they did. They did get inside the church. They have masqueraded as high-ranking prelates in the church, and they've been a part of a lot of the confusion, a lot of the false teaching, bad catechism, and a lot of other scandals. But this was their goal, to destroy the church from within. And this is, of course, all the work of the devil. So, And this is not conspiracy theory talking here. This is actual fact, historical fact. There were a number of groups who philosophically developed an attitude to the church that was anti-church. And it goes back centuries, actually. It's just that now, after centuries of working to infiltrate the church, to tear it down, to destroy it, they, they've arrived and they're deeply entrenched in very powerful positions in the church. So these three influences, these three infiltrations, are what's behind a lot of this tension right now. We have to be realistic about it. As I said, one is just a understandable naivety that we have to move beyond. The other one is a false sense of having revolutionized the church and not being able to yield to maybe, well, maybe sometimes we weren't right. Maybe some things went too far. And then thirdly, the actual intent to destroy the church. So many Latin Rite Catholics, understandably hurt and confused, have sought solace somewhere where they could have what they believe is a solemn, traditional, solid liturgy, solid teaching, being solid about Catholic teaching and so on. And they've turned to some of the Eastern Catholic churches, such as mine. And in doing so, that's part of the beauty of the church, the the different lungs of the church, that you can move about in the church for various reasons, trying to remain faithful and still stay within the church. The Byzantine liturgy, the Eastern liturgies, by nature, yes, they are solemn. The Eastern churches do have a tendency to be very solid in their in their faith, very faithful to the magisterium and to sacred traditions. And the liturgy is what helps keep them that way. See, the liturgy is everything. The liturgy tells you everything. It informs life, and life informs the liturgy. So what you do at liturgy is how you believe. So if the liturgy is intact, your belief and you're living out of the faith will be intact as well. But if it goes wrong at the liturgy, and even Pope Benedict XVI said this, if things go wrong at the altar, they will emanate wrong throughout the whole church. And that's why proper liturgy is so important. So the people in the Latin Rite who are very concerned and love very much their ancient traditions, they, they have a very good point. Because liturgy is something that we don't tamper with, not fundamentally. We can make legitimate developments in it, but you don't uproot it. Think of it as like a tree. A tree, you don't uproot the tree. You can trim the tree and nourish the tree, pick the fruit that may come from it and so on, but you don't uproot it. You don't tear it up from its root and put it somewhere else. That's, in some ways, what happened in the church since Vatican II. It's just supposed to be more or less a taking care of the tree so it continues to develop so it becomes the best of itself. That's what Vatican II was supposed to be. That's how things are supposed to work in the church. For those who have come to the Latin Rite, 
the place of the Eastern churches may be a temporary oasis. Maybe they find a permanent home, maybe a home for a long time, maybe for a short time. But they also have to remember, too, that the Eastern churches are what they are. They are Eastern churches. You can't expect them to be the Latin Rite Church. And they are there just as the Latin Rite Church is there for Eastern Catholics. Many Eastern Catholics found solace in the Latin Rite because of difficulties in, within the Eastern Catholic churches. And again, this is part of the beauty of the church, that it has both lungs. And we can stay within the church, although there may be turmoil and confusion, there is still a place for us. And so I urge everyone, I know many people are hurt and confused, but stay in the church, stay with the church. Above all, stay focused on Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit byzantinecatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. WTN Radio for the reason that Mother Angelica founded this entire enterprise. She always saw this as a spiritual growth network. It was to be an enterprise in media that reached people in all aspects of their life. She saw this as a, a holistic approach to reaching the whole person in the middle of the world and bringing them truth and life. Raymond Arroyo thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!